Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzen. Tonight, I'm excited to have Jim Stoll in the studio with me for the entire show. Jim is an actor, playwright, and one of the finest storytellers in the Midwest. He has a great history of storytelling and plays and acting that he's done in the Twin Cities over the last 40 years. And he's going to talk about his past, his present, and his future. With no further ado, I would like to introduce my friend, Jim Stoll. Tell us a little bit about what you do so that people know who you are and what you do, and then we'll get into your uh, the early years. But. Well, what I'm doing right now, because you understand this, um, this is the next stage in sort of an evolution of life as an artist, as a work, somebody who's worked over 45-something years in theater. Right, in the Twin Cities. And I started by doing a completely different kind of work. Now I'm doing mostly storytelling, uh, which grew out of another uh, sort of evolution. I went from writing full cast plays to doing one-person plays. Um, And that sort of evolved into storytelling. Uh, so that's basically what I'm doing right now. At the moment, there's a place in Minneapolis called Cheap Theater, and um, I am on a, I think it's a six or seven month project with them. They do a storytelling venue every month, and so I started about four months, three three months ago. Uh, and I, every month I do a new story, but they're like chapters in a book. And so I'm on chapter, coming up this month will be chapter four. And it's, the subject is, um, and the title of the book, if it was a book, the storytelling, would be The Intoxication of Solitude. Huh. Um, and it has to do with my time in the wilderness, and mostly in the parks. So this is not about the time I was in the Amazon or in the mountains in Mexico and all of those other journeys. This is mostly about America's national parks. And then my eventually my work, uh, uh, I've spent 16 years as a seasonal park ranger. And so th- that's what I'm working on right now. I'm on chapter four coming up, and eventually there'll be 10 chapters. Tell us about the park ranger gig. Oh, it's a wonderful... At one point, I'd, I'd been to the Sierra Nevadas in California for 14 consecutive years backpacking. Um, and then in the summer, as you know, in the theater, summer is a really downtime for theater. Uh, so I asked my older brother, who was a park ranger, I said, I need a job for the summer. He said, why not try being a park ranger? And miraculously, I got hired at Sequoia National Park in California. And it was because the person they hired quit at the last second. So it was the way I like to put it. They scraped the bottom of the barrel, and there I was. And timing, as they say, is everything. Timing is everything. And that's uh, that's how I got that job. Um, And so I worked out there for a summer. Uh, And I wasn't quite ready for it then. This was back in, like, 1988. I... I don't do very well with uniforms. Uh, for example, when I was in the military, I was always being uh, in trouble. I actually went to jail a couple of times uh, because of insubordination, and I just could never wear my uniform. Right. Plus, uh, you got to keep those shoes shed. Well, you know, for example, my shoes. They have certain rules about shoes. Um, you know, the military, they got rules for everything. And so I had shoes that fit the rules, 
but were totally wrong. They had the right number of holes, but they were these Italian leather shoes, like three-inch heels. Okay, so they had the right holes, the right color and everything, but they just, you know, were wrong. Right. Um, so Dan, Dan your beetle boots. Yes, pretty much. Pretty close. Uh, and so, uh, you know... I wasn't ready for it in the 80s, but then I went back about 16 years ago, 50, 15 years ago, I went back and got a job at Voyager's National Park, again, for the summer. Um, uh, but then I worked 14 consecutive seasons in the Apostle Islands and National Lakeshore up in northern Wisconsin. And, and I worked and lived on an island. Uh, and lived in, and worked and lived in a lighthouse, a historic lighthouse. And you wore a uniform. And I wore a uniform, but I was on a u- on an island, fourteen miles away from any office or uh, you know any sort of official Park Service people. Mm-hmm. So I wore the uniform, but I was out of uniform every single day. Right, but it was a vintage uniform because we weren't you kind of playing a part Oh, I did there? occasionally wear the, uh, uh, the the traditional Lighthouse Keepers uh, uniform. And Lighthouse Keepers had a uniform. Right. right? They had a specific uh, uniform. No, but And my Park Service uniform, I always wore the wrong shoes. Um, and I wore suspenders, which are absolutely not allowable. And little things like that. But I was so far away, nobody ever came out there. And so it was the perfect job for me. I mean... I walked out the back door of the lighthouse, and within five minutes in the forest, less, a few minutes in the forest, I'm in the complete wilderness. Um, and so it was perfect for me. Uh, it was possibly the, the only job I could ever have lasted that long in. Was there a lot of wolves up there? No, not there. Not in this part. Uh, very few wolves. We would see them occasionally on the ice uh, with nature camps. Right, um, but no, that's not a big area for wolves over there. Not a big area for wolves, and and there were eagles, and I there were years I saw a lot of eagles, um, but for the most part, that mm, Lake Superior is not a good place for eagles. It's a tough, tough scene for. How about moose? No, no moose over there at all. Not, I never heard of anything up on what's called the Bayfield Peninsula. Did you go fishing at all? When no, you were I'm not there? a fisherman. Really? And it's not a fish off. You're on Lake Superior, and you don't fish. I don't fish. Um, that's just one of the many odd things about me out there. Um, and um, it's not a stand on the dock or stand on the shore fish kind of place for the most right. part anyway. You, but you have to go in a boat and you have to get pretty deep for the most part. There's a few places I'm told you can go bass fishing. That's You, you don't have to go so deep. But for the most part, it's not that kind of a lake. Uh, so when you were wearing your uniform, did you do kind of a historical talk to the visitors to sure. the island? Sure. That was my job. Uh, Tell us, so like, get into character for just a minute. But I'm here with Jim Stoll, great uh, Minnesota storyteller, and uh, he's going to go in character here for the what he did as a park ranger on the island. Sure. Um, welcome. I went out and then I would say, welcome to Raspberry Island. Uh, I want to tell you about the lighthouse. Um, the lighthouse was uh, originally constructed in 1862, opened in 1863, right in the middle of the Civil War. This is an awful long way from the Civil War. So for the federal government to spend $6,000, a lot of money in the middle of the war in 1863, and the most seasonal park service rangers, it's still a lot of money. Uh, and then they built this building out here, in the 18, opened it in 1863, for traffic coming primarily from the west, Duluth and Superior. And they would be going into Bayfield, which in the 1860s was a big port. 
1885, 1886, there were over 350 million board feet of lumber came out of that part of the country, right? Wow. And they were all that white pine. All white pine, red pine, and then they cut everything pretty much. You know, they went through the big stuff first, and then they went through the small stuff second. And there was logging in, in the Apostles up until the 1950s, I think, even into the 60s, all the way out on, um, where was it? Um, it wasn't Outer Island. I think it was, yeah, it was Outer Island. They were, they used to, there was an airport out there, airport, airstrip. Right. Right. Uh, and so they would fly them out there and fly them back. They called them the Flying Lumberjacks. Hmm. So it was logging. And brownstone. A good name for a band. <laughs> yes, it is. What you think of it? <laughs> yes, and it doesn't involve any dead animals in their name, so that's good. Um, so yeah, it's it was primarily for that. I talked to him about um, the, the the building, um, the different outbuildings. Um, the, the, there's a huge building there called the Falk Signal Building. And that changed the entire place. They had to bring out a third man. There were two guys working out there. It was their, the men and their families. Hmm. So they all lived in one building. Um, so the living circumstances for lighthouse keepers and their families were really quite extraordinary in how they weren't horrible, but, you know, it was, you were very crowded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you had to be able to live with all these other people and their families. So back in, when, when it was built, uh, Jim, in the uh, middle 1860s, how many boats were going by there in the course of a, a summer? A busy summer would be over 200 ships. Wow. So it was a busy port. Uh, when they founded Bayfield, they wanted it to be the next Chicago. <sighs> Of course, everybody lives there now. I was really happy that never turned out. Right. Uh, but, but you know, there were, around Bayfield, there's three or four places that they're not. You can't tell it now, but there were huge lumber mills, right? Um, and you look at the old photographs. Uh, there were these huge lumber mills there, and so that's basically what they were doing. It was lumber, as I said, lumber, fish, and a little bit of brownstone. In, in dozens and dozens of shipwrecks. Lots of shipwrecks. Not so many right in where I was, because I was on what they call the inside, right, as opposed to the open lake. Uh, but there's most of the shipwrecks that happened there were not because they ran into rocks or anything like that. It was because something on the ship caught on fire. They used to have what they called donkey motors. Um, donkey motors? Donkey motors. They were essentially what we would call a winch Okay. these days. I think that's my understanding. And they're all run by steam. Fire. Right. right. And there's four Wooden or five boats. Wrecks. Wooden boats, fire. There's three or four wrecks there where um, the ship just caught on fire. Um, and there's a, a little bay there called Schooner Bay because uh, there's two wrecks in that bay. And they just drove the boat right onto the shore, mm-hmm. bailed out into the water, made it to shore, and the boat just burned down to the water line. And then they went in and salvaged as much of the lumber and everything that was in the boat that didn't burn um, and pulled it all out. So there's a, most of the wrecks in my particular area with a couple of exceptions, which are really quite extraordinary stories. I mean, everybody loves shipwreck stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most of them are because of fire. There's one great story, uh, Sand Island, which was near the island I worked on, Raspberry Island, in which... Um, they, they got out into the lake, realized it was too big, turned around and tried to make it back, hit um, a shoal, and broke the ship right in half. And 
the sailors mostly on one half and the passengers and a couple of crew on the other half. They all made it into shore in the lifeboat, and everybody else, I think right. there was five or six of them, the crew and the captain all died. You're back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour. More with Jim Stoll as he continues the story about the shipwreck on Lake Superior. And the captain washed up onto the shore, and he was very beat up, right? I mean, he was missing arms and legs. That's the lake. Right? Yeah, right. Um, but it was supposedly had tons of, uh, like, three or $400 worth of cash on him to oh. pay the crew. When they found him, there was no wallet. Interesting. And later, the story goes, a couple of days later, a couple of, as they referred to him in the papers in those days, ne'er-do-wells, showed up in town with lots of money. Yeah, right. And some of the money was wet. <laughs> really? <wet>. Yes, yes. <laughs> so... They couldn't convict him or anything, but they figured out, okay, we knew what happened to that money. Wow. Uh, so there's stories like that. So, yeah, everybody loves shipwreck stories and ghosts. I was always asked, are there ghosts in the lighthouse? Every, almost every day somebody would ask me that. And that's a great title for a song, Ghosts in the Ghost Lighthouse. in the Lighthouse. Yeah. yeah, the blind lighthouse keeper. Um, so we've already got two bands. That go <laughs> two bands in the title. Start. This is going to be your whole, your whole, a whole new beginning for you. Um, yeah, and... I always would tell people, I spent many nights in this lighthouse, and I haven't run into a ghost yet. I've spent most of my adult life working in theaters where there's supposedly always ghosts, mm-hmm. right? And I like ghosts. I, they don't all, they're not all evil running around trying to kill us. Um, and I said, I haven't run into one yet. If I do, I'll, I'll let you know. But the living people are interesting enough for it. Let's just deal with them. Now, do you work? Do you, are you actually working the uh, the uh, the lights in the lighthouse? Oh too? no, no, nobody does that anymore. Okay, uh, it's all automated. Well, and it's all run by the Coast Guard. See, I'm on the National Park, right? And, but there's this tiny little thing. There's a big post, and the post has the light. Okay, and it turns itself on, turns itself right. off, and it's all run by the Coast Guard. Yeah. Well, let's go back to that. Uh, when the ship was on fire and came up into Schooner Bay. Now, how did, you know, there weren't cell phones back then. That was before walkie-talkies and, uh, and uh, did they have Morse code or how did they there get? There was no way to know. Was it smoke signals maybe? I don't know. I mean, no, well, there was just no communication about yeah. things like that. I mean, there just simply wasn't. Um, so you had to almost wait for another ship to pass. Sure. And try to get their attention. Sure. I mean, or send up flares. Yeah. You could send up flares. Right? The guys, when the ship broke out on the shoal, is about five miles from shore. They sent up flares, many flares. The lighthouse keeper on the island near there, it's called Sand Island, he saw the flares. There was nothing he could do about it. He's not taking a rowboat into a, sh- into a storm that's sinking a major league ship. Right. Right. So he, there was nothing he could do. He just had to sit up there and watch them. And he tried to help them once they got up onto the shore. Right. Beyond that, there was just something, never, nothing you can do. Right. The lighthouse keeper at uh, Raspberry Island, where I worked, rode down in the lighthouse keeper's log. Um, yesterday, two fishermen off the coast, about a mile and a half from where he was, ship capsized and they both drowned. And then period, in the entry log in the log, uh, and general cleaning day. Huh. There was nothing he could do, right, to save him. There was nobody he could call. They were just gone. And he reported it to a ship went by. He hailed them down and reported it. The ship went into town and told somebody about it. Huh. But that was it. 
I mean, so no, no, there was no, no communication for things like that. Well, back in the day, did the uh, lighthouse keeper, did they, did they keep an, any animals like a, Sure, know, they had dogs and cow, but I mean, for you know, chickens. For oh, chickens! Only chickens. Um, no pigs, no cattle, no sheep, no goats, nothing like that. Okay. They didn't have time to deal with it. They didn't have any place to keep it. Uh, I mean, to, once you slaughter them, what do you do with it? Right. Right. So no, they didn't have time to to deal with all of that. So, chickens. They, they chickens. Yeah. So they, they when the lighthouse keeper went out, they probably brought their supplies yep. in a big boat. Yep. And then probably at a, I guess a certain point probably resupplied. Yep, they had a ship. They had special ships that were designed simply for that. That would bring them supplies, equipment, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, out there. So they were supplied in that way. And then they had a boat uh, to go back and forth to Bayfield, the nearest uh, city of civilization, buy some supplies there, and come back out. So you know, the, it was. Um, I, I, if you've been lived in a water culture. Any of the lighthouses keepers going by, the other lighthouse keepers, there were eight of them out there in the Apostle Islands. If they went by Raspberry Island, they stop. Go into town, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And they come back out, they drop it off, they spend the night, you get to socialize with the other guy, right. the lighthouse keepers, and then oh, back to your island. Right. And they meet in town and, and um, socialize uh, and back and forth, right? So it was that sort of... Uh, multifaceted, semi-ad hoc system of supply for the folks out there. Well, for a writer like yourself, Jim Stoll, it must have been a very creative thing to be a part of when the tourists are gone and you've got all evening Mm. to write and read and be inspired. Oh, yeah. I had some great times out there. One of the... uh, I spent a whole summer out there. uh, I think it was in 19... No, 2012 or 13. I went down and, and uh, told at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. It's it's the Broadway of storytelling in this little town in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. Uh, they set up five tents and they shut the whole town down, which is not very big, but still, they shut the whole town right. down. And you can't drive in, uh, and you go from tent to tent, and that change over every hour, right? And so I and you have to have like four and a half to five hours worth of material. Hmm. Ten minutes, so many ten minute stories, a couple of 15, 130, a couple of 30 minute stories, one one hour story, right? And so I spent the whole summer out there rehearsing, standing up at the top of the lighthouse tower, which I can you can do at the lighthouse, um, down on the end of the dock, um, out in the middle of the forest, doing that, right? Rehearsing all those stories to get ready for that. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a great time. And I've I've done um some writing out there while we were living in Bayfield, partially on the island and partially in, in the little town of Bayfield. My wife and I wrote the script for a, a play called Church Basement Ladies. Which is in its fourteenth year right, or something. Right. Still still yeah, going yeah, on. Still going say. on. Um so all of that, I mean there was some really wonderful things in terms of my writing that happened. Well, tell us years. about uh, the church basement ladies. Well, it's a long story, uh, but we wrote it up there, my wife and I. I would, um, my wife, first of all, it's about ladies in a Lutheran church in the basement, four of them, uh, uh, and a minister, five characters total. And as I've always said, I know nothing about women, and I've never, almost never been to church in my life. So 
I had to rely upon my wife, Jessica Zolke, who's a Lutheran and grew up a Lutheran and spent a lot of time in church basements. Um, and um, A lot of casseroles. A lot of casseroles. She, she knew all about casseroles. She knew about aprons. Did she do Ludafisk? Oh, oh, no, we don't do that. Okay. Uh, but she's been through, she's suffered through that uh, much of her life. Um, and so uh, we, I would go out to the island and write and then come back and say to her, you know, my two days off, that's five days on the island, two days off the island on shore, back and forth. And I'd say, okay, let's go over this. And she would say, no, they would never say that. Not like that. And she would say, say it more like this. Right. right? And no, they don't eat that. Right. No, no, never that. No, no. So it's more like this. So I was sort of like the carpenter mm-hmm. building the frame of the house. And I got all of that built. And she'd come in and say, no, here, move this, do that, do that. Right. And have, make it more, you know. So it was a wonderful teamwork. So what was kind of, what's the storyline? Oh, going it's, on it's four different scenes of four different times in the lives of these ladies in the church basement. I can't remember it. Uh, one the first scene is there are four emergencies, and that the lady okay. is fixed in the basement. Uh, take care of everything. You're back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour. More stories from storyteller Jim Stoll. Tell us about that Amazon show. Then I want to talk about the the Cuba show you did because I thought this guy's got it figured out. He takes his trip, spends how many ever weeks doing that, and then comes back and tells the story. And makes money to replenish the coffers that he used to take the trip. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. The money-making part was a little trickier. Um, but th- I, uh, at one point, I, you know, I had run a theater here in town called the Palace Theater Company mm-hmm. for many years. And there was a lady here in town named Patty Lynch. Bless her heart. She doesn't live here. And she lives out in Maine now. And, um, and the palace was over and I was acting around town. And um, she got uh, Kevin Kling and I together and said, I want to do an evening of storytelling. And um, she said, I'd sat around, because I'd worked as an actor with Patty, and she, I was, she said, we'd sit around and drink a beer and I'd listen to you tell stories. Let's do this. Hmm. So Kevin and I did an evening. I, he was on first, and then I was on second, I think. I think that maybe I was first, he was second. Anyway, um, and it was a huge hit. And to move the set back to put in more seats. Even a producer caught on, caught on to that. Uh, low low overhead cost. One actor, mm-hmm. no set. Right? Uh, boom. You Bare make bones. money. Bare bones, baby. Yeah. And so it was a hit. Kevin, at that point in his life, was, he's uh, maybe a generation or so younger than me. He, he had other interests. But I had been writing full-length plays for like almost 15 or 20 years at that point. So the whole one-man play was a huge change for me. I felt like I was making movies. Mm-hmm. I could make a movie. I didn't have to worry about it. And so the Amazon show, what happened was, um, the first show was a hit. And then I, I went to Central America. And the first show was about Texas, growing up in South Texas. And so that was a hit. And so Patty Lynch said, well, where do you want to go now? And I said, well, we were in the midst of our illegal and immoral war in, in Nicaragua at that point. So I, I want to go to Nicaragua. Wow. And she said, okay, we found a sister city program in the, uh, just outside of the Twin Cities. Uh, and, and my wife, Jess, and I went and lived for a month in Nicaragua. Traveled around the country, uh, came back and did that play. That was a hit. I got filmed on TV, uh, KTCA filmed it. 
uh, was, and I won an Emmy for that. Did you? Yeah, that must have, you must in the eighties come into some dangerous situations. Oh yeah, we went to get theater equipment in this pickup truck with these guys in this Nicaraguan theater. The theater equipment consisted of a bag of grenades, uh, an automatic weapon, and some clips. At one point, we were at this co-op where they lived and worked. And they said, we want to show you some theater pictures. And they, they had, all, all theaters are like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a whole wall full of their pictures. And right in the middle of these pictures, I just happened to notice, it's a little street, a village, right? And it's a dirt road in the middle of this village. And there's this something, and I look very close in the picture. It's a dead body. It's just shot to pieces. And it was a contra. Um, and so that was a part of their life. They traveled with weapons. They had an automatic weapon in the bedroom where we slept. Um, so we were pretty close to the line, front lines at that wow. point. Back in town, back in Leon, Nicaragua, it was just there was no danger of that of that nature. The Amazon was uh, was different. Uh, so after we did that show, that was a, we were on TV. Wow. Okay. Patty said, "What do you want to do next?" And I said, "I want to go to the Amazon." Wow. Because that's always been a dream of mine. We went down there, and and it was very difficult. We couldn't do a lot of things. Um, I wanted to live with natives. I went to the Brazilian equivalent of the BIA. It's called FUNAI, F-U-N-I, something like that. I discovered all the Indians, like many Native Americans in this country, totally dislike, hate, or completely distrust uh, the BIA here. Right. And and they that was the way it was in, in Brazil. They didn't trust FUNAI. Uh, for good reasons, as I was to discover in a lot of places. Um, so it was, I never really got together with natives at all. But that trip opened doors for the second time, and the second trip was probably the one you saw uh, to the Amazon. And that's where my wife and I lived with Native American people uh, called the Kashinawa. Uh, and they were about two weeks by boat from the nearest city, which was called Crucero de Sul, which was very close to the Peruvian borders. Where I was in the little village in the Amazon, you could walk across a small river, the Rio Breo, and which was maybe 40 feet across. You could wade across that river, and you were in Peru. <laughs> so where you sat in the village, you looked across the river into Peru. And so people spoke a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of Portuguese, and their own native tongue, the Casinoa. And there was a tribe lived right down the river about uh, six or seven hours, and they were the Campas. And so the chiefs in this tribe spoke um, Kashinawa, Campa, uh, Portuguese, and Spanish. Hmm. I always said, that's your primitive guy, guys. Right. Uh, he speaks four to five languages. <laughs> yeah, your primitive guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And they were astonishing, but it was a tough trip. Yeah. Uh, it was dangerous in... The, How long was it? Well, we were supposed to go in for, I think, a week to ten days, and we were there about three or four weeks. It stopped raining in the middle of the rainy season, and so we were stuck. We couldn't get out. And then I caught malaria. Oh, man. And also, um, what was it? Um, pneumonia. Wow. I had malaria and pneumonia at the same time. So by the time we left on the trip back, it took us about a week to get back. Uh, by boat. Um, this is where you sling your hammocks up at night mm-hmm. on this little boat. Um, of course, there's no trend and there's no communication of any kind, no electricity or anything like that. And it took us about a week to get back, and most of that week I spent in my hammock. 
Well, uh, having hot, you know, because you go too hot and cold, right? I mean, at night I could hardly sleep. I would start to shiver, and then I would go into the sweats back and forth, hallucinations. Wow. So Jessica, my wife, fed me most of the time. Wow. I didn't think about eating. I couldn't think about it. I went to the hospital there. <laughs> you should have seen this place. <laughs> it was more frightening. We went to the hospital, and the, we said, no, no, we're not doing this. Jessica had read about this before, and she brought... Needles, huh. we had two needles with us, and when we got to that hospital, they got ready to give me a shot, and I, heaven knows how many people had had a shot with that needle before they got to me, <laughs> and Jessica rolled out her own needles, and at that moment, all that time she carried that stuff with her, bing, it came in handy, wow. and they gave me a shot, and they went, got on a plane because you couldn't get a plane out every day, the right. plane only came in twice a week if they could land at the runway. Mm-hmm. Then we went back, and eventually got back to the United States, and I spent about a week in the hospital at the University of Minnesota. Wow. Oh, it was so University. Talk about suffering for your art. And, and University of Minnesota was great. It's a teaching hospital. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they would come in in groups and say they would say to me that you know the head doctor would say this guy was in the Amazon, and yeah. one doctor said, "Can you imagine?" He could have any one of a thousand different diseases. They were so excited. How exciting! How right? exciting! Everybody had to come in and feel my spleen. Right. Uh, I must have had twenty doctors feel my spleen, mm-hmm. and they were all they were so excited about all the. Did you swim in the rivers? I said every day. Oh my God! He could catch anything. Oh, oh, let's try this. Wow. And they would do you know there was a lot of poking and plunging right. um, in the hospital. Uh, and a friend of ours, okay. a mutual friend of ours, Harry Jacob, a yeah. doctor. Big shot at the University of yeah. Minnesota. I finally called them up and I said, "Harry, I'm you know I'm this uh, you know experimental thing over here." Right. He shows up and he, all that came to a stop. Right, right. Because <laughs> they right, right. they were ready to do. Let's try this. Right. We can. Let's open them up. <laughs> <laughs> so we finally got it stopped. And I so I was in the hospital about a week, and it took me four or five months to to get over that. The, the, you know, because I was very run down and the pneumonia and. Um, and the malaria, and you sort of ran me down pretty well. Well, when you're in the Amazon, I mean, I have to think, especially during the rainy season, there's got to be bugs going on. <laughs> <Right>? Bugs. <laughs> well, different people react differently to the bugs. Right. I had boils and big, huge pus things on my body, all wow. over my body. Right? Jessica got bit by the same bugs. It would leave a little red mark. Hmm. On me, it would swell up and fill up with pus. Wow. Okay. She didn't get sick with anything. I got malaria and pneumonia. Wow. She came out in probably in terrific health. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it just, you know, it's like the one doctor said to me, it's just not good for you back here. <laughs> <laughs> so what about, you know, anacondas, uh, oh, well, wild boars? Oh, we didn't see any of those. None of that's around the village. Right. Okay. Because they would have eaten it. Okay. There were no monkeys because they ate them. Mm. All right. Um, one time we had monkey, okay, which I could not eat. Right. There was this little hand floating in the stew. Woo. Okay, I couldn't do that. Um, and so, yeah, there was nothing like that around the village because they ate it. Right. Um, so that stuff could have been out there. So I don't really, I don't know if I want to ask about. Did they have dogs? Yes, they did have. dogs. They had dogs, and like so many places. 
it was a horrible. They treated them horribly. Right. Right. But they were really necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. They were the guard dogs. Right. We went out of the village one time with some people from the village. And they went to a certain distance, and they said, okay, you can turn around and go on this trail and go right back. Right? We, we went back. As soon as we got to the edge of the village, here came the dogs. Hmm. Right? So they treated them just horribly. And what kind of dogs were they? You know, mongrels. Yeah. Uh, long and lean and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they could come up well, with. Well, I mean, mean. And no, not necessarily mean, but, yeah, right? it was their job. right? Yeah. And they, they hit them, and they kicked them, and they, you know, it was awful. Yeah, uh, the way they treated the dog, but they were there. They were there in both villages, the Kampa and the Kashinawa, and um, they served their purpose. Did you get uh, photos of a lot of this? Oh, sure. Jessica took lots of photos. They're quite extraordinary, really. Wait, did you incorporate those into the show? No, no. I never. I don't use that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I just at that point, and I still feel this way very much. The greatest strength of a one-man show is the fact that it's a one person. And it relies upon the classic storytelling uh, person, somebody sitting around, you're all sitting around the fire, and somebody's telling you a story. If you, and it's always been my idea, take us back to that, right? That's what we want. We want that. We right. need that. that. And you know that from music. When you get back to that place inside of it with people, and you're going to that kind of place inside of them with people, that's what we need. It's we all want about- it. We need it, right? Uh, right. And and it, it's it, it's in our DNA. I mean, it is. You had the caves, and then somebody invented fire. And the first thing they did, they sat around the fire and they told the stories. Story. Exactly. Yeah. And so we need that stuff. And so that's why I most of my one pen plays were pr- they're pretty simple in terms of the tech. The Amazon show is what I always call my opera, because the theater, alas, no longer with us. The cricket theater built a big set. They had sound effects, lights, and stuff, all kinds of stuff. Oh, great, perfect for sound yeah, effects. Well, yeah, and so, and they had, and I had made some recordings, mm-hmm. right, of, uh, of singing and uh, voices and stuff. So they played that, right, at various points. And, um, there was hallucinary, there was a parts in the play where I would hallucinate, on, you know, act out hallucinating on stage because oh. that was happening to me back there. And so scenes would often come out of hallucinations. Wow. Back into reality, back into hallucinations. And so they used the sound effects for stuff like that. So that was my opera. That's the biggest, most technical play I've ever done as a one-person play. storytelling culture, right? South Texas, right. right on the border of Mexico, where storytelling was just a part of everyday life. Right. Right. And, and everything's I'll, bigger in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. And and I won't go into too much about that. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I think it was the culture and then uh, my work in the theater. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I came to storytelling from theater. I came to being a one-person uh, actor, storytelling person from theater. So everything for me evolved out of that. Right? And so working with, I, I learned about what makes a good story, how to put together a good story. Uh, and what does make a good story? Well, it's, for me, it's basically, uh, I broke it down, um, uh, a terrific setting. Right? Um, and my stories, 
always had these in extraordinary settings, right? Um, the mount in Nicaragua, and then um, and the Amazon, Cuba, um, uh, South Texas, the border, you know, La Frontera. Uh, so a great setting, um, and then um, charismatic characters. On these trips, of course, there's there's endless charismatic characters. The guy in every one of these countries, I've always met somebody who's just simply, usually several people who are simply extraordinary characters, right? And then stakes. What's at stake? Are there high stakes? And for the people involved, and occasionally my wife and I, uh, for the people involved, it was often life and death. <sighs> right? The stakes for those people that I was talking about, the, the situation was often life and death. Or certainly very high stakes in in Belfast, Northern Ireland. The the guy, the people I lived with, and the family I lived with in in Belfast, they were all uh, 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 Republicans, which is um, Irish nationalist. I mean, they they wanted Northern Ireland reunited with the rest of the uh, Republic of Ireland, and so they, there were um, several of the members of the family were in the IRA, mm-hmm. right? and a couple of them had been to prison. Uh, for several, five or ten years each, right? And so um, the stakes for those people were always real high. They couldn't have, for example, dogs. Huh. They could not have a dog because the police would kill them. Wow. They had a dog and the police came to their house and killed him. Why? He got in the way. They wanted to. That's all. They wanted, he was, they, and it would break their heart to have to stand there and watch hopelessly as the police killed their dog. Huh. And which is what they did. Wow, right? and so there's you know for those people in these places that's terrorism, that, a, a version of it, um, and so in every one of these places, the Kashinawa, every day was life and death for them. Right? I mean, you get bit by the snake, you're gone. Right. 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 The old man in the village, his job was to go around uh, the edge of the village every day. When we ar- arrived, he had a, about a six foot long snake. He'd killed that day. Wow. That was also part of the job of the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for those people in these places. You have very high stakes for the people involved. So it's those three elements. You have to have a great setting, fabulous characters, and high stakes. What were some of your favorite authors? I know you're very well read. Uh, I don't know. I'm sort of a guy, so I read a lot of guys. Um, although I do love uh, Louise Herdlick. Um Her work is quite extraordinary. Um, Hemingway is a young guy. Sure. Right? I grew up in the uh, 50s and the 60s, and so... Hemingway is a, a great, uh, I'm a great fan of his work, the clarity um, of his stuff, and the, the other people like that, Steinbeck, Hemingway. I have to thank uh, a fellow who's a, I believe he was a St. Paul, Minnesota native, recently passed, Robert Persig, The Art of Motorcycle yeah. Maintenance. Yeah. I think I read that when I was a young guy, I can't remember. Um, just kind of one of those young guys, like on the road, all those young on, guys. Well, books. on the road had a big impact on yeah. me. I ended up, getting, you know, and almost getting fired from a theater because uh, me and the guy who was playing, I had a tiny part. And the lead actor in the show and I, one day, um, I got a big check from uh, something. And we jumped in a car uh, uh, and drove it to California. It had This was on Monday. We had a show on Friday. <laughs> we arrived in California, took LSD. Uh, and hang around for like a day, got on an airplane and flew back. Uh, and, you know, uh, and it was all because I was reading on the road. Come on, man, we've got to get in a car. We drove right. 80 and 90 miles an hour all the right. way to Minneapolis to L.A. and delivered some poor guy. 
he saw, expected us in like three days from now. All of a sudden, we appear on his doorstep, and it was hard for him. You know, he wanted to say, how did you get here so fast? <laughs> but he didn't want to hear the answer, which was, right. we drove 90 miles an hour, night right. day. Dean, Mor- Dean Moriarty on the, uh, at the wheel. That's absolutely. <laughs> Only more, this is modern times, we took uh, LSD all the way out. <laughs> we stay awake. Yeah, so, right, know, right, so, right, 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 uh, So, yeah, you know, it was, that was a little different, yeah. Jim, I saw, I think it was about a, a year ago at the Black Forest, you uh, told a, a story, a series of stories, but the one that really stuck with me, brought tears to my eyes, was about your Mexican babysitter. Yeah, yeah, and Maria. Well, I think you could, could you share that with us? Because it, it's so timely yes. right now with Here, what's I'll, going you, on. I'll tell you a little story right now. Yeah, How's please that? do. This is just a, a, let me do it, see if I can remember this. See a woman's face. See her face. Late 30s, early 40s. Dark skin. She's an immigrant. I'll be honest, at one point in her life, she was an illegal immigrant. Ah, illegal immigrants much maligned these days. See her face as she looks at the first house she has ever owned in her life. She's never owned anything like this. See her face and you will see joy. A joy so intense, it makes her cry. Now watch as she walks to the front door, opens the door, and looks into that house. See her face, and you will see pride. pride. But this is the kind of pride she has earned, has every right to. She came from Mexico into the United States illegally, ended up in Minnesota. Her husband is a good man in Mexico, but he couldn't adjust to the United States. He started to drink. He started to abuse her. He started to abuse the children. So she left again. She moved to St. Paul with friends and was selling tortillas out the back door of the house when one of her friends said, you should go to a place in Minnesota and Minneapolis called Project for Pride and Living, PPL. They have a job training program. She went and she passed. And at the end of the program, the people at Project for Living said, well, we don't just train you to work. We help you get a job. And the lady said, I'm going to work here. And the people at PPL said, oh, we love you, we, and, and you're wonderful, but we train you to go out into the big world. You can do this. And the lady said, no, I have to work here. And if you put me out that front door, I'm coming in the back. And if you put me out the back door, I'm coming in the front. I'm going to keep coming in the door until you hire me. I have to work here because I want to help people the way you helped me. They hired her as the receptionist. Now she runs the education program. See her face and you will see the pride of an American citizen looking at the first home she has ever owned in her life. Now hear the voices of her children as they run past her, filling those empty rooms with life. See the face of that little boy or that little girl as they open the door to their room. No more sleeping three to a bed. Now they have their own room. See that child's face and and you'll see joy, all right. But you'll see pride there as well. Now see the look on that woman's face as she sees the look on her child's face. Oh, and you will see joy. A joy so intense, it makes her cry again. See that woman's face and you will know what dignity looks like. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This show is produced by Paul Metzen, Andy Watson, recorded by Paul Sowie at MCN6.org in Northeast Minneapolis. We'd like to thank our guests, Carrie Pickett and Winona LaDuke, 
Follow us online at wallandpowerradio.com. Like us on Facebook at Wall and Power Radio Hour. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.